Good morning, church. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, we will be reading from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. These verses can be found on pages 496 through 497 of the Blue ESV Bibles. As a reminder, those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seats in front of you. Um, And please know that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, recognizing that we are a people who has a, a tendency to be asleep, God, when, when the hour, the moment urges sobriety, when it urges alertness, awakeness, God, we find ourselves slumbering just like the disciples so long ago. And God, we take very seriously the words of this text that say, that, that call us to watch and to pray. For we, as we all know, our, our spirit is willing, our, our assertions are bold. We find that our flesh is weak. And so Lord, we ask that you would do what we cannot do, that you would supply the strength of your Holy Spirit to keep us alert, to keep us awake, to keep us diligent in the things that matter. And to ignore the things that don't. To have the priorities of the godly and not the priorities of those who are self-interested and and self-righteous, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just 
reveal to us the truth of this word by an action of your Holy Spirit and that we would become more like you from glory to glory as we sit under the teaching of this word. Help our ears to hear. Help my heart and my mouth to teach effectively, God, and in accordance with what has been spoken, not adding or detracting from anything that you have said. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So very good to be with you today. So very good to have you here. I would be remiss if I did not say a public and hearty thank you to Pastor David and to Gabriel. Um, how many of you were here last week? Raise your hands. Okay, so how many of you thought that that was an incredible job that Pastor David did with the text? Amen? And um, fantastic. What most of you don't know is that he had about six hours to prepare that because somebody, no names mentioned, called him and said, I am traversing through the valley of the shadow of death and will not be present in the morning. And so Pastor David, as he's done so many times, just picked up the baton and ran with it beautifully. I'm so grateful for these men. Uh, some of the other responsibilities that I have in getting ready for this service were neglected because of the condition of my health. And Gabriel just stood up like a man and took those and made sure that they all got done. And it was a, I watched the service online. It was a fantastic service. So I'm, I am very grateful to them. Thank you for all of your prayers. I feel much better. I may not sound like it, but I promise you that I do. And, um, so I am ready to be preaching again. I'm ready to share the word of God with you. So the text that we have today picks up after the Passover, after the Passover meal, after the Last Supper, as we often call it. Jesus has announced to his disciples that one of them will betray him. And shocked, they each asked Jesus, if you'll recall, if he is speaking of them particularly. They say, is it I? Is it I? Or is it one of the others? And all Jesus indicates to them is that it will be one of them. It will not be one of the Jewish authorities, one of the Roman powers, but it will be an intimate friend who will do this vile thing. And of course, Mark reveals to us in the text that this is Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Furthermore, that night... And the focus of Pastor David's message last week is that after the Jews had been celebrating the Passover meal for 1,500 years, Jesus takes this festival, so familiar to these men, and all of its rituals, and he puts them in their proper historical context. He tells the disciples that the bread which they are breaking together signifies his body. The cup of wine that they are about to partake signifies his blood which will be poured out for them. And this revealed that Christ is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. Who being sacrificed as the means of their true deliverance will give his body and his blood to inaugurate the new, the better, the lasting covenant founded on his perfection and his innocence and not on our performance. And somebody better say amen to that. At the original Passover, you'll recall, the blood of the lamb painted on the thresholds of the Israelite door, uh, household thresholds 
And, and painted on those thresholds was a pledge of God's deliverance of his people from his avenging angel. But as that was, so now the blood of God's perfect lamb, his ultimate lamb, his final lamb, his spotless lamb, would be the pledge of deliverance from the wrath of God against human sin forever for those who applied that blood Having shared this most important meal, this most sacred meal with his disciples, Mark tells us that they together sang a hymn, just like we did this morning. Don't you like that? And they made their way to the Mount of Olives. Their celebration had mostly, most likely begun around sundown um, at, at approximately, say, 6 p.m. And it was now after midnight as they made their way out of the city to the east. And the hymn that they sang wasn't just some random selection from the Jewish songbook, but it was the Hallel. And it was taken verbatim from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. This was the the song that faithful Jews sang at the end of every major festival, every major major uh, feast that they had. And the 113, this is important, this wasn't random again. Psalm 113, as we read this morning, as, as Tyler led us in Psalm 113, it speaks of God's salvation to the poor and the needy. Psalm 114 recounts his deliverance of his people from Egypt. Psalm 115 speaks of the overwhelming glory of God alone and the blessings that he bestows upon his people. Psalm 116 celebrates the mercy and the salvation of God. Psalm 117 praises the Lord for his steadfast love to his people. And Psalm 118 finishes with rejoicing over God's rescue of the righteous. And all of these themes uniquely speak to what God was about to accomplish through Christ on the cross within 24 hours. The writing of these psalms, and this is what I want you to understand, and their addition to the Passover observance was no accident. The more you look into the the events of these days that Mark and, of course, Matthew, Luke, and John describe for us, you'll find that there is nothing that was accidental. There was nothing random. There was nothing that was just circumstantial. But God used all of this stuff to point to what he had been doing since before the foundations of the earth. Jesus and the disciples walked down the stairs through what is called the muster gate on the east side of Jerusalem. They went, descended and crossed the Kidron Valley. And then they began to ascend the Mount of Olives where they'd been so much. It had become so familiar to them. It was dark. The night had already been full. And all of them, you can imagine, were exhausted. And on this, on this ascent, as they're going up the Mount of Olives, Jesus adds to the, this bombshell revelation that one of the twelve was going to betray him. He says in verse 27, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now can you imagine, after the exchange that had taken place a couple hours before, is it me? Is it him? Is it, who is it? Jesus, tell us. And on this march up Mount, the Mount of Olives, Jesus looks at him and says, guess what? To a degree, it's all of you. You're all going to fall away. The shepherd, myself, Jesus, is going to be struck, stricken and all of you will scatter. Jesus, in quoting the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 13.7, informs the disciple of an imminent disruption of their faithfulness. 
None of them will escape the evening unscathed, but all of them will be scattered. This very suggestion that that Jesus is making is absolutely repulsive to Peter. Now, if you've been paying attention in the year that we've been in the book of Mark, Peter has proven himself throughout Mark's gospel to be very brash, very impulsive. Have we seen that once or twice? And he boldly asserts his commitment to his master. And in the process, he throws all the other disciples under the bus. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Was this just machismo on Peter's part? Was he just flexing his muscle for Jesus and all the other disciples? Or was there something more? Well, I am inclined to give Peter... The benefit of the doubt. If you'll recall in chapter 8, Jesus makes his first announcement to his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, that there he would be persecuted, that he would be killed, but on the third day that he would rise. And Peter hearing this, once again being very impulsive, rebukes Jesus. You heard that right. And yet, Jesus says to him, in response to his rebuke, he says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And then Jesus defines for Peter, the rest of the eleven, all of us, 2,000 years later, the, the, the definition, he sets the standard for what the disciple's life must look like. If anyone, Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in in, in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Now, what it seems like to me is that at first glance that Peter took these words Very seriously. He was not going to shrink back from death. He was not going to fail to take up his cross. He wasn't going to cling so tightly to his life that he would miss out on this acknowledgement of Christ in the glory of his Father and holy angels. But where this all breaks down is that Peter seems to have determined to go where Jesus was going, remaining loyal to the Lord to the death, even as Christ had required all his followers, And so it breaks down because why wasn't he commended instead of corrected? Well, may I suggest to you that it was he proposed to remain loyal to Christ in the strength of his own will. He wasn't relying on either the grace of God or the power to obey God that God alone can supply. He underestimated his own fallenness. And I wonder, perhaps, if I might be in the company of one or two believers like myself who have often made bold pronouncements about my loyalty to Christ only to find that I had painfully underestimated My own fallenness. Any others in this room? 
It's altogether true that as Christ's followers, we must be willing to go with him, suffer shame and persecution with him, and even die with him. The problem is that none of us are equipped to do that according to our own power. We must be dependent upon God, not only for the grace to live, but the grace to die. Peter's assertion was based on his own faulty assessment of his own ability, of his own resoluteness. He didn't understand that all these things that were unfolding before him must take place so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He didn't marvel in what Christ was undertaking as much as he just wanted to be a footnote in that story. But our destinies, our lives and our deaths are to be left to the goodness of God for the glory of God alone. No matter what God chooses for us, we must say amen and trust him to exhibit his glory in our weakness and in our sanctification. Amen? Romans 14.8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. That means for those of us who will never have the beautiful opportunity to die a martyr's death, praise be to God. It is God's sovereignty that let us live unto the Lord. And if God called any one of us to a place, into a situation where we must literally lay down this physical life, then nothing is lost because we have died unto the Lord. So then, Paul says, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And living or dying is not what gives us comfort. It's the fact that we're the Lord's. That we belong to Jesus. Peter's words exposed his own heart when he looked in the face of Jesus and said, I will not. What a difference is the declaration of I will not than when we cry out for the Lord alone to keep us, to sustain us in our faith instead of Boasting of our own piety, our own boldness, our own faithfulness. Jesus prophesies Peter's failure in no uncertain terms. He tells him that before the rooster is heard crowing twice, Peter will have denied that he even knew Christ on three separate occasions. And yet, in the face of even this second uh, insistence by Jesus, what does Peter do? He doubles down. Nope. I'm going to the death with you, Jesus. And Peter wasn't alone in his self-righteousness and self-determination. Mark says what? That all the others said the exact same thing. The quickest way to find the boastfulness in a man or woman's heart is to start boasting in front of them. You ever been to that party where somebody's telling a story of some amazing thing that uh, that they experienced and the one-upmanship starts? And um, that's happened in my backyard a few times with some of these guys that are here right now, but... But Jesus once again proves his divinity by proclaiming what would happen beforehand. Before it ever happened, Jesus says, this is what's going to happen, and it happened. Only a short time would pass before the accuracy of his words would be proven for all of these braggarts. Now, verse 32, act two of this, of this, this play. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. 
Remain here and watch. Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives was an ancient olive grove. In fact, the name Gethsemane means the olive press in in Aramaic. It was here that the soul of Christ, the human soul of Christ, would be crushed like so many olives just before his body would be crushed in a few hours. As the precious oil flows from the olive press, so precious grace would flow from the crushing and the pressing of the Son of Man. And Mark says that facing this, that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. The Greek words used here mean that Jesus was alarmed thoroughly, that he was amazed, that even he was terrified, and that he was bearing an immense heaviness. Now, in our firm belief, that Jesus is God, that can, that can d- disturb us a little bit, can't it? Why is Jesus experiencing a terror, a, a, an alarm, a, an amazement? He describes his sorrow to his disciples as having enough strength to threaten his life. I am sorrowful unto death. The severest form of grief is what Jesus is experiencing. Luke tells us that this was seen in the fact that his sweat was as great drops of blood. Now, This may sound odd to you, but this is an actual, albeit rare, medical condition called hematidrosis. If you don't believe me, you can look it up on WebMD. Instead of figuring out how you're going to die in the next 15 minutes, go to WebMD and look up hematidrosis. It's caused when the body's fight-or-flight responses uh, are are related or are reacting to a high-stress situation. It can be related to, to the high blood pressure that is experienced in those stressful situations. The detail of, of Luke's, this detail of Luke's tells us of the immense amount of stress that the Savior was experiencing in the garden that night. Can you imagine the olive press, the crushing that was happening to Jesus to get him to experience this kind of physical symptom for him to say, my soul is sorrowful unto death. But we have to ask when we look at this, we have to, we can't ignore it. And even ignore the problems that it may create for our theological position. We have to ask, what could cause the Son of God to experience so much shaking, so much uneasiness? Well, let me take the quick route here. We must not imagine that Jesus was recoiling at any thought of the pain of death or the pain of torture. How do I know that? Because many Many lesser men throughout history have faced both death and torture without flinching. So what troubled him? What troubled him was for his innocent soul. None of us know what it's even like to have an innocent soul. But his innocent soul was was imminently about to be stained with human sin and to be under the wrath of the Father with whom he enjoyed unbroken eternal fellowship. If we see the perfection of his divinity in the prediction of what would happen to the disciples, we see the perfection of his humanity, that he was absolutely perfect, truly, absolutely man. In the prayer he prays to God, verse 36 says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. What's happening here? First, 
he acknowledges the love of God. God's love for him, his love for God. By using the intimate title, Abba, it's... We don't really have a, an English equivalent, but you've probably heard this before. The closest we could come is daddy. It's, it's, it's a very intimate thing that his son would call his father. Next, he acknowledges God's authority over every circumstance he might ex, ex, uh, experience. All things, he says, are possible for you. And he makes his request known to God, as the Bible instructs us to, remove this cup from me. But see, it's his last statement, this pledge of submission, this pledge of obedience that sets Christ apart from his disciples, from Peter, and from all of us. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Galatians 2.20 tells us that we live by the faith of the Son of God. And this is what it's talking about. The faith of the Son of God resigns itself to the goodness of God and the execution of his purposes no matter what. See, faith, let me help you guys with some definitions here. Faith is the reliance on the goodness of God and the superiority of his will no matter what the cost to us. Abraham knew this faith when he bound his son Isaac to the altar Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego knew this faith when they refused to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. American evangelicalism has taught for decades now that faith is believing for something. You sick? Believe for healing and that's faith. You need a better job? Believe for that job and and that's faith. No! Christ teaches us here, the faith is not believing for something, remove this cup from me, but it is believing in someone and trusting him with every minute, with every breath, zealous only for his glory. That is what faith is. After praying a while, Jesus checks in on his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, whom he selected to share and participate in this most sacred of moments, only to find them fast asleep. Verse 37, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's something interesting about Mark's account here. He does not speak in general to his disciples, but he singles out one of them. Why do you think that is? In his loving rebuke, Jesus addresses Peter, the one who moments before boasted of his allegiance to Christ. The one who would not flee death has fallen asleep. The one who would stand alone against all the forces of Israel and all the forces of Rome has been slain by weariness and exhaustion even before the battle began. And Jesus tells him that though he expressed a willing spirit with bold proclamations, his flesh was in fact Weak. Only watchfulness and prayer 
which demonstrates the reliance on God that we mentioned earlier, are the remedy to a sleepy, lethargic, distracted human frame. This word watch comes from a Greek word that means to be on your guard, lest by your inattention or your dereliction to duty, uh, some calamity should overtake you. See, what had happened, to put it in terms that we'll understand, Jesus had issued a spiritual tornado warning, and the disciples had turned off the TV and gone to bed while the wind was blowing outside. Whenever people come to talk to me, about a catastrophe that's unfolding in their family, in their work, in their health, in their spiritual life, I find not always, but generally, there's been a pattern of sleeping through all the warnings of impending danger. They have failed to be watchful regardless of their best intentions, regardless of their bold proclamations. Mark tells us that Christ returned to his place of prayer and prayed the same words two times now. And once again, he came back to his disciples only to find that they were sleeping again. And this time, Mark adds this little bit of commentary. He says, their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. You know what that's telling us? You know what that means? They were ashamed by their lack of alertness. Failure to watch. To be spiritually alert, to be sober, to be diligent and vigilant. To stay spiritually awake. It will always result in our experiencing shame. Remember the five foolish virgins who were not watching for the bridegroom's return. And therefore they were not prepared. Remember that wicked generation back in Genesis that was overtaken by the flood. Because their eyes weren't trained on the sky like faithful Noah's were. Paul again writes for us in the book of Romans, besides this, you know the time. If the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness. And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The day is dawning. Now, what does that mean? It can mean a lot of things. Depends on what warnings you're sleeping through. Depends on how you're ignoring the call of Christ to watch. I have full confidence in the Holy Spirit to take this warning and apply it to your individual situation. But the day is dawning. The rooster is about to crow. And will that day that is bursting forth on the horizon, will it find us alert, putting off the deeds of the flesh, or will it find us Spiritually, fast asleep, rolling over in bed one more time, the bed of this world, snoring loudly, reaching for and repeatedly hitting the spiritual snooze button. See, Paul, when he wrote these things about the day is far spent and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he wasn't writing to pagans. Do you hear me? 
This wasn't a gospel invitation. He was writing to the church, to believers like you and I. Don't imagine that simple belief in Christ, the fact that you come to church, the fact that you give a few bucks in the offering, the fact that you, you know, participate in the Lord's Supper, don't believe that, don't imagine for a minute that simple belief in Christ is enough to shake you from slumber. We live in a world and we fight a devil who is the master of lullabies. Have you ever thought about that? I've said this for years that some of us are waiting for the big attack from the devil. You know, we're, we're, thinking about the whole armor of God, and we're getting ready to, like, you know, slay devils over nations and all this stuff. But let me tell you something. The devil will never, ever unload his arsenal on you if all he has to do is sing you a lullaby. You have nothing to fear from the big attacks of the devil if he can just make you go to sleep. Rise up! Dress yourself in holy armor and go forth and do exploits in the name of the Savior. But don't sleep anymore. The the night is far spent. The day is at hand. It's time to wake up. So a third time, Christ prays to his Father the same words. He's persistent. He's diligent. He's faithful. And a third time, he returns to find his faithful followers doing just the opposite. They're still taking their slumber. But this time, it was too late to be watchful. This time, it was too late to pray that the flesh would be strengthened for the grueling trial that lay ahead of him. Jesus said, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. All that Christ had promised was coming to pass with incredible, amazing speed. The sheep would scatter, and he, like the high priest of old, would enter into the holy holies alone to atone for his people. He would be the priest, he would be the sacrifice, and he would be the temple where the offering was made. So today we're we're faced with the need for self-examination, the need to look at ourselves and say, where am I asleep? Am I asleep in my public witness while those at work, at school, in my neighborhood are going straight to hell? Am I sound asleep living with a profession of faith but the exact same values that they have? Asleep in my fear to ever speak up and proclaim boldly the truth of God's gospel. Perhaps you're asleep at home. Perhaps you are faithful to make sure that your children are here. And right now they're in the back. But you have never been troubled to teach them the gospel at home. You've never been troubled to pray over them and for them in front of them. They've never seen you as a spiritual leader because if you let your intimidation keep you asleep while your home burns. Perhaps your slumber is taking place right here at church. Perhaps God has called you to step up, to serve, to give your life 
in the service of others. I'm not talking about stacking chairs and serving communion. As important as those things are, I'm talking about investing your life in the body of Christ to see that Christ is glorified, the kingdom is expanded, and, and the glory of the Lord shines in our little corner of Lubbock. That's ah, Mark's job. That's Dave's job. That's Gabriel's job. No. Wake up. Wake up. Step up. Watch and pray. Be ready. Be diligent. Be vigilant. So today your job, my job, is to ask ourselves, where are we asleep? Where are our eyes just getting, our eyelids just getting heavy? Where are we drowsing? God, how, how do we wake up? How do we come to life? How do we pursue obedience? We can all be like Peter and make bold proclamations. We can say, I will never betray my Lord. The government wants to persecute us, bring it on. That's a great proclamation. But are you asleep right now? In the middle of the freedoms that we enjoy, are you asleep? And that's the question that we must all wrestle with, isn't it? Could we not watch? Could we not pray even one hour? Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life-giving even when it's challenging. And Lord, I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to come and make application of this story to us. Convict us of our bold, self-inspired proclamations, our declarations of what we would and would not do. Forgive us for those things, God. Help us to forsake such silly vows. And help us, Lord, to to cling to, to rely on your strength, to make us able to be faithful. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and he will make your path straight. And so, Lord, do that for us. Help us to lean on you, to trust in you, to forsake all hope of our Selves to not underestimate our fallenness, but to look to you, to be strengthened, to be obedient, to be able to glorify you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite our communion helpers to come forward to the table and prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. Throughout church history, the church has viewed this most sacred of moments in our liturgies and our services as an opportunity to renew our covenant with Jesus. And, and I, I want to encourage you this morning towards repentance and the things that we've shared. Now, what you may hear is that if you find that there are areas of drowsiness or even sound sleeping in you spiritually, that that's what I'm asking you to repent of. Consider your need before the Lord. That is not what I'm asking you to repent of. I mean, I hope that you will cause yourself to wake up 
or, or you know, stir yourself by the word and things. But here's what I want you to to pray is is not that you would just somehow through the initiative of your own heart or energy to be awakened, but that you would realize, unlike Peter did, that you are dealing with a very fallen man, a very fallen woman when you deal with yourself. And that you need to do what Peter didn't and cry out to Jesus for mercy, for grace, to do what you cannot do, to keep you diligent, to keep you vigilant, to keep you sober, to keep you awake so that you can enjoy the life of putting on Christ, as Paul tells us. So I'm just going to give you something I don't often do during the time of communion, but I'm going to just give you a, a few seconds. Just bow your heads and just ask God. If you have seen areas where you have relied on your own strength, just be honest with those to Jesus. If you see areas where, as I said earlier, that you're sound asleep, just be honest. Just ask the Lord what he... You're not going to bring any new information to Jesus. So just acknowledge him and ask him to, to cause you to experience the grace to live. Lord, I humbly repent of all the areas where I have relied on my own strength, the the strength of my own profession and proclamation, God, instead of the strength of your broken body and your shed blood. And Lord, I, I, I ask you to come and restore my soul and cause me to to God, just just wake up and enjoy the fellowship with you, which you offer through your strength, not through my strength. I'm never going to do you any favors, God. But God, you have not withheld any anything, anything at all, to cause me to walk faithful and to walk holy. And so, Lord, I ask you this morning to wake us up. God, as we take this bread, as we take this cup... Help us to know, God, that there is there's symbols of the fact that we did nothing to save ourselves. That it was the humble submission of the Son of God when he said, Yet not what I will, but what you will. And God, I pray that as we're refreshed by these sacraments, Lord, that we would take the same position, that we would say to you, Not what we will not according to our own desires, but according to whatever God calls us to and according to whatever brings him the most glory, let us live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may come and receive these elements and then come and take them back to your uh, seat and we'll take them together in just a moment. Mark's gospel tells us as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's partake of the bread together. And now the cup. Now let's together give thanks for this inexpressible gift. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. God, nobody is here because of our own willpower. No one is here because of our own self-sanctification. We are all here as recipients of abundant grace. May we ever continue to be recipients of abundant grace, O God. God, we cling to you, we look to you, and we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read one benediction over you, and then you will be dismissed. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything becomes... When anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.